It's almost been two years since the Trump-Biden presidential race. Yet, the claim that Mr. Trump did not really lose the 2020 election continues to consume GOP politics as we head into the midterm elections. The framers, the founders, wanted majority winners. They didn't want minority winners. Madison, who, when he writes the Constitution, says, we're not going to have any parties. We don't want parties. By, by 1792, he's writing an essay called In Defense of Parties because he's saying, my party is the good party. <laughs> our electoral college is not the original electoral college. So the concept of the 12th Amendment is if, if, if we're no longer in the Garden of Eden with no parties and we have intense party <laughs> conflict, at least the majority party should win. It turns out afterwards, mostly in the era of Andrew Jackson and subsequently, we've abandoned the requirement that you need a majority at the state level. We don't have a system that is really the system that we think we have. There's a, we're, there's a disconnect between what we think our system is doing when what we want our system to do and how our system actually operates. To my mind, what happened on January 6, 2021 is a signal that we are now more like the 19th century and that we're regressing. Did you know that the dispute over the 1876 U.S. presidential election continued until just two days before the inauguration and that many Americans anticipated, feared in fact, that there would be two simultaneous presidential inaugurations? The nation was split, and more frighteningly still, the Army's generals were split over which presidential candidate was the rightful winner. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 26, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. I want to read to you this line from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, I'm going to be very focused on working to ensure that we do everything we can not to elect election deniers. That was Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who lost in the Wyoming primaries to an election denier. In an in-depth analysis this week, the New York Times broke down the GOP's election denying politics into three distinct categories, the deniers, the enablers, and the acceptors. According to this article, in the New York Times, about 66% of the U.S. House Republicans have objected to the 2020 results in at least one state. There are also election deniers among U.S. Senators, eight of them, attorneys general, 
in 17 states, and the list is growing, including candidates in the state gubernatorial races. Enablers are those who are similar to Florida Governor DeSantis. They're not outright deniers, but they endorse and assist those who are. And acceptors are those who accept the 2020 election results and refuse to endorse Republicans who continue to deny those results. The number of acceptors is much smaller than those of deniers and enablers. Amy Gardner of the Washington Post was recently interviewed in the PBS NewsHour program, during which she explained her deep dive into Republican primaries. I'll just share some salient points here. Across 41 states out of 469 nominating contests so far, more than half of all Republican winners, 250 candidates, are election deniers. Ms. Gardner believes that, quote, denying the 2020 election has become a price of admission in the Republican Party. As a reminder, as if you need it, this is all happening two years after the last presidential election, and the dispute and the denials are only intensifying. So, how does this fit into our history, the history of election disputes in America? I know. <laughs> Believe me, I know. It's hard not to get sucked into the politics of it all. But here, I do a good job of sticking to history. And I do that by speaking with Mr. Edward Foley, whose most current book is Presidential Elections and Majority Rule. And his book prior to that is Ballot Battles, The History of Disputed Elections in the United States, which was named finalist for the David J. Langham Prize in American Legal History and listed as one of 100 must-read books about law and social justice. We talk about those books, and I provide links for them in the detailed caption of this episode. Professor Foley holds the Ebersole Chair in Constitutional Law at The Ohio State University, where he also directs its election law program. He's a continuing opinion columnist for the Washington Post, and for the 2020 election season, he served as an NBC News election law analyst. As reporter for the American Law Institute's Project on Election Administration, Mr. Foley drafted Principles of Law, Non-Precinct Voting, and Resolution of Ballot Counting Disputes, which provides nonpartisan guidance for the resolution of election disputes. He also co-authored Election Law and Litigation, The Judicial Regulation of Politics. To learn more about Professor Foley, his many accomplishments, and his long list of publications, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Foley and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Foley, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Professor Foley, I'm interested in speaking with you about your book. It's titled Ballot Battles, the History of Disputed Elections in the United States. In, in particular, I want to talk about this phrase, fair elections. <laughs> is this such a thing? And kidding aside, What's the definition of a fair election? Is there a legal definition? Is this sort of consensus definition? Yeah, it's a really great and important question. You know, there is no single canonical definition that we can all look up and say, aha, now we know it. Um, and I think it's important to distinguish 
two different concepts of fairness with respect to elections. Two different concepts of fairness? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, So one concept of fairness, I think, is more directly familiar with us, the idea that each of us should have the right to vote. Uh, regardless if we're a man or a woman, regardless of racial background, all citizens should have an equal right to vote. Um, that has not always been our view in the United States, as I think every, people know. We needed the 19th Amendment adopted in the 1920s to get women's suffrage. We needed yep, the 15th yep. Amendment adopted in 1870 to uh, avoid racial discrimination with respect to voting and to make that unconstitutional. So, um, and we needed the civil rights movements to make sure that African Americans actually do get to vote. Exactly. That we, uh, you anticipated my next point. We don't really fully realize that concept of fairness until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And some people would argue that you know, we're still in the process of trying to realize that as we implement the Voting Rights Act and, um, and, and, and its adjacent provisions. And some people worry that we're you know, receding from our commitment to the Voting Rights Act, we we could talk about about that. But the but the point about why that there are two different conceptions is that even in a world that denies women the right to vote, even a world that had slavery, there was this different conception of election fairness that meant you actually counted the votes that were cast by eligible voters, whoever those voters were. And that you had an honest and accurate count, and you didn't stuff the ballot box with fake votes or or commit manipulation of the count. So this other concept of fairness is whatever the rules are, whoever gets the right to vote, that you actually run the election according to the rules, you play by the rules, and you get an outcome consistent with the rules as opposed to cheating according to the rules. And and that idea, that second idea of election fairness has been with us from the beginning as a concept. We haven't always abided by it, but that it's getting it's hard for us or many of us today to imagine, but you could have somebody like James Madison who insisted that elections should be run according to the rules and no cheating, and yet believe that women shouldn't vote and and believe in slavery at the same time why why did pre- president madison well i assume he said that when he was president right or before well, actually that. before when he was in it was when he was a representative in in congress before he became president but i'm just wondering why did he feel compelled to say that well there were disputed elections oh, early, boy. early on and and the the country kind of had to work it through and there was so there was a contested election out of Georgia uh, uh, in, in, you know, 1792 or thereabouts. So the Constitution was written in 1787, adopted in 1789. You know, and, and, you know, within just a few years, we get a disputed election from Georgia in which there was the stuffing of the ballot box. Uh, uh, oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, it was I mean. You know, we don't have fraud, thank goodness, today the way some elections in the past. And this was out and outright fraud. And so the losing candidate, the victim of the fraud, went to Congress and said, I'm the rightful member of Congress, uh, not the one who was 
ostensibly named the winner because the named winner was based solely on fraud and I should be the one uh, to be the winner. And so Congress, without any guidance directly from the Constitution, had to think how to handle this. And, And James Madison gave a speech as a member of Congress advancing the proposition that he took came from English common law and William Blackstone that you know that there was if you were to be committed to what they called a republican form of government not even not even though he's getting this from England and the monarchy he thought that that anytime you have an election and you allow the voters to vote you've got to uh you you've got to have the vote conducted properly and fairly and that means an honest and accurate count of ballots professor so foley yeah in my mind, I, I I draw a distinction, which I'll share with you in a second, between the concept of fairness and the dispute over elections. Uh, I'll, um, before I go there, I just want to make sure that I understand this. Uh, so when we talk about fairness, the two-pronged concept, one is the right to vote, such as like the right to play. And the second is that when you do play, when you do vote, it's fair. That they're not going to take away your vote, not count it or double count it if it's, you know, it's in favor of someone they like. It, has there been any election in our history? Um, I sort of where we are now in 2022, I feel compelled to ask this question. Has there been any election in our history where everyone said, yeah, that was fair? Or is that is that a commonality in our elections? Yeah, oh, there have been lots of elections. I mean, the good news is that most elections um, don't get litigated. Again, the the, the sort of norm, I, I understand why you're asking this now and there's acute yeah. pressure on our system, but usually the losing candidate graciously or even, you know, sometimes reluctantly concedes defeat. They acknowledge that they really wanted to win, but they lost. Elections are obviously competitive. I mean, that's why we talk about fair play and we talk about the rules of the game sometimes as an analogy, because it's not a game, it's serious business, but it is competitive. We want it to be competitive, right? It, un, you know, a, a system of government that does not have competitive elections is not really a democracy. It's not popular sovereignty of the people. You You want there to be different candidates offering themselves and their visions to the voters for the voters to choose. And and so there's going to be a winner and there's going to be at least one losing candidate. And the system isn't going to work unless that losers acknowledge defeat. Normally that happens on election night with a concession speech. Occasionally it happens after a recount, sometimes even after litigation. But the concept is reaching closure. A fina- um, finality. finality. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and again, usually it's relatively straightforward um, because the losing candidate says there's nothing real. I mean, I lost nothing I can do about it. Maybe I can win next time. Um, interesting, uh, uh, you know, um, say two points, one to the contrast to Madison, the other founder who kind of weighed in on what our concept of uh, the electoral process should be early on was Alexander Hamilton. And he was not as persnickety for fairness the way Madison was. His attitude was if you, <laughs> is if, if you were cheated out of a, of an election, you know, accept it, but win next time by a bigger margin so they can't cheat you next time. Whereas Madison said, we got to stop the cheating and get to the accurate result. But I do want to mention one election in, 
in particular in response to your question, because I think it is the model of how to do it correctly, even when it's close. The model, it's, okay. It, yeah, it's 1884. Nobody knows about it because it, it was not disputed. Another one along the same lines would be 1916. You could do either one, but 1884 was first, and it was in an era of hyperpolarization, hyperpartisanship. They were worried, this was a presidential election of 1884, and they were worried that it might be disputed, it might be very ugly. And it turned out that year that New York was the pivotal state. You know, New York's not a swing state now, but it was back then. Whoever won New York would win the Electoral College. And um, was this between Cleveland and Harrison by any chance? This was Grover Cleveland and and James Blaine was James, oh, James Blaine, the Republican, okay. and Cleveland and Cleveland had been governor of New York, was the Democrat. Okay. And uh, it turned out it was about a thousand vote margin in New York, so it was very close. Um, uh, you know, New York's a big state, so it was a kind of one of these proverbial razor thin results. Mm-hmm. And the Republic. And 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 Cleveland was kind of on 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 top, and the Republicans were worried that there was fraud, and they went looking for fraud, and it took two weeks to settle. You know, in other words, um, there was no concession speech for the first two weeks, um, but and each side lawyered up. They got their lawyer their lawyers, and they looked over the ballot, and and there were allegations of fraud in. Um, in New York City and and Long Island. And the lawyers looked at it, but at the end of two weeks, the Republicans said, you know what? We actually lost fair and square. It wasn't fraud. We just didn't have enough voters vote for us. And so there was that concession speech. It was two weeks after election day, but it, it created that finality, that closure that allowed both sides to say, okay, Um, When Cleveland gets inaugurated as president, he's entitled to the office by virtue of the fact that he really won it. And it was that acknowledgement of the losing side that made the process come together. So it can happen even in a razor thin result, even when there's allegations of of fraud. And, And something similar happened in 1916 with the same positive outcome. Again, same two week delay, but ultimately the right resolution. Was the 1916 example that you 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 um, reference here? Was it a presidential election or another another presidential election? This was Woodrow Wilson running for re-election, and Charles Evans Hughes was the Republican. Uh, he had been on the Supreme Court. He would end up on the Supreme Court later again as chief justice, he was considered a progressive Republican during that progressive era. So you had Woodrow Wilson, who was thought to be a more progressive Democrat, Charles Evan Hughes, more progressive Republican. California happened to be the pivotal state that year, not New York. Oh, back then, 1916. Okay. Yeah. And, but don't, when you think of California in 1916, don't think of modern day, huge California. It was actually a relatively low population state you know, at the time, um, it, it was, this was before the boom. Uh, I mean, there had been the gold rush, obviously, California, yeah, created, yeah. State, but, it, but it was a little bit different anyway. Um, and it took a long time for California just to count the votes because some of parts of California were quite rural back then and mountainous. And once again, it took two weeks to settle. Um, and again, you had the lawyers, I mean, they knew how to lawyer up back then. And you had the Republican national committee, 
on behalf of the Hughes campaign saying, we're we're not sure we trust the California votes. We're going to send our lawyers out there and really look at it. But after they looked at it, um, they said, nope, not fraud. We lost. We got to admit it. And, and so... Um, did they did they go to litigation? No, they didn't. If it's just two weeks, they didn't go to litigation. Yeah, they didn't obviously. go to litigation. They did it. You know, they did what they 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 did an intense inspection of the canvas of returns is the way to talk. In other words, they didn't just do the ordinary counting of ballots. They went back and reviewed the canvassing of returns to make sure there weren't any shenanigans. Um, we went from fairness or perception of fairness to dispute. Um, setting aside current events going back in history is there any other one that's just infamous that was just ugly that comes to mind yeah i mean i think the most important disputed election uh, was 1876 again presidential i mean there's a, there's other things i mean the in terms of ugliness uh, an assassination of a candidate in, in you know in the governor's race is ugly but but in terms of the 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 fate of the nation as a whole being embroiled in a dispute um 1876 was very scary at, for those who went through it and and i i'm afraid that the history you know the average history class in college or high school doesn't bring to life the full drama and the momentousness of it, I mean, the inauguration of the new president back then was on March 4th. You know, we've changed it. We now do inauguration on January 20th. But the dispute was not resolved until March 2nd. <laughs> wow, that's two, two days before inauguration. They don't know who's the president. So were they exactly. making plans for the inauguration ceremony? In fact, they were very worried that there might be two simultaneous ceremonies because they were still both candidates were claiming victory. And the incumbent president, the outgoing president was Ulysses Grant. He was not a candidate for re-election. The Republican candidate was Rutherford Hayes. Democratic candidate was Samuel Tilden. And the generals of the U.S. Army, remember, this is not that far, long after the Civil War, right? The Civil War was in uh -huh. the 1860s. And this is the election of 1876. And the fight is really over Reconstruction, which and Reconstruction is all about reconstructing the nation after the Civil War. And the two parties had two very different visions of Reconstruction. And so, um, so the U.S. Army has generals, some of which are signaling that they will, if it comes to this, and there's two simultaneous inaugurations, two people claiming to be commander in chief <laughs> on March 4th, some generals said, well, we're going to obey the commands of, of President Hayes. And other generals were signaling, well, no, we would obey President Tilden. And that, so that would have been a crisis. That's crazy. That's like Civil War 2.0. Exactly. Exactly. They really, we were, at, we were very close to a second civil war. And some historians think that the only reason why it didn't go there was because civil war 1.0 was so bloody and so recent for them. They just, you know, 700,000 Americans died in the civil war. And so that much bloodshed a decade earlier meant they had to find some way out of a second civil war. But um, it came very, very close, even recognizing that, you know, they were only one decade away from the Civil War. So between November of 18, 
76 to March 2nd of 1877, they reached some sort of compromise, which uh, takes me to this last question in the final minute we have of this segment. Have we had any election dispute that has lasted or election denying election issue that has lasted two years out, similar to the 2020 election? I wouldn't call it a dispute because it's no longer in the courts anymore, uh, or it's not like a, you know, it's not a formal dispute, if you will, but it's still in politics. True. No, you know, based on my research in the book that I wrote, there's been no moment in American history like what we are going through right now. I think we are in a particularly dangerous moment that's unlike anything that we have before, and we can discuss why. I mean, to, to the closest thing that comes to what you're asking about now, probably many listeners may remember that even after the election of 1960, where Kennedy won, Nixon lost, you know, there were those folks who grumbled on the Republican or Nixon side that they thought that Nixon was cheated out of victory by Mayor Daley in Chicago in particular. Now, but Nixon, Nixon bowed out. Graciously. He did. He never, yeah. he never litigated it. So he, yeah. you know, so this was kind of grumbling and it was sort of, you know, coffee table talk or cocktail party chatter. It wasn't yeah. anything like we're go going through right now, but, 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 you know, you, you know, from time to time, after 1960, even, you know, into the 80s and 90s, people say, oh, yeah, 1960, you know, whatever. but that, but the very fact that that was so different than what we're going through now, and yet that's the closest thing to what we're going through <laughs> now, shows you how unprecedented what now is. <laughs> Where we are, yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about violence in U.S. elections. In this episode... Professor Foley tells us that a U.S. presidential candidate can be elected into the White House with not only a minority of the national popular vote, but also a minority of the popular votes in states, including those states that are pivotal to the candidate's election. Wow. If that's the case, then in our country, a minority political party can hold much power over the majority. It, it's happened every 10 years, even during the Civil War, it happened, right? Even, even during the Civil War. Yep. Now, which takes us to this shocking story. In the 1920s, we had the 1920 census. What happens next? Nothing. The, <laughs> that's, that's the amazing part. The, the rural forces who were almost identical with the dry forces, the, you know, the, the prohibition forces, they knew that if they had done a reapportionment based on the, the 1920 census, um, the, the entire course of congressional action over the next 10 years uh, would have changed. Uh, there would have been no support. There would likely have been no support for any enforcement of prohibition. The amendment was in the Constitution, but no, no, no enforcement at all. That was the voice of Daniel Okrand, who superbly tells us how in our history, the power of a minority political group has been felt in other significant ways. For example, a minority of Americans pushed through the prohibition, and that minority later prevented the data from the 1920 census from being used to redistribute congressional seats in the House of Representatives. By the way, 
This redistribution is constitutionally mandated. It's not like Congress has a choice or had a choice back in the 1920s. So, in the 1920s, our own Congress was violating our Constitution in a big way. This is a fascinating story that my guest Daniel Okrand describes in Season 2, Episode 24. I've added the link for that conversation in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Foley. Professor Foley, have we experienced election-related violence? We talked about the scary um, election of 1876, uh, but were shots fired? Were people killed? No, no, thank goodness. You know, there there were some political cartoons saying Tilden or blood. And so there, <laughs> were, there was, you know, with a picture of a, of a, of a gun <laughs> in the cartoon. So there was um, oh threats of violence. And, you know, again, threats of a second civil war. And and we've had some other elections where there have been threats, but 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 there have been some elections, not presidential elections, but gubernatorial elections and, and some other elections where that have unfortunately, you know, caused some bloodshed. Um, you know, there again, there's two types of election violence, just like there's um two types of election fairness. And even in 1876, I suppose I should say, there wasn't any violence associated with counting the ballots, but there was considerable violence leading up to the casting of ballots in 1876 The in the South, in the Southern states, particularly South Carolina and Louisiana, but elsewhere in the South as well. You know, the, um, the terrorist type organizations that were trying to undo voting rights for African-Americans, negate the promise of the 15th Amendment, were starting to um, gain power. In fact, even in 1872, we see versions of this. There's something called the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana in 1872. That's actually over the result in, in 1872. So it fits within your question of, do we see violence over election results? In 1876, oh, Colfax we, massacre was it a presidential election uh, violence? There, there was a presidential election in 1872, oh. but the violence was not directed at the presidential outcome. The presidential outcome was a landslide in favor of Grant's reelection. The violence was over who was going to be governor of Louisiana and and control the government of Louisiana, and and the violence was was in connection with the counting the votes. To determine the winner of the, the gubernatorial election of 1872, and it, okay. you know it, it was horrific. It was a there were people. Um, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I think you know, I think they were taking refuge in a church, and uh, and I think you know um, it's disputed exactly how many people died, but but you know could be as close to 200 people perhaps were just slaughtered uh in cold blood as part of the violence associated with trying to control the outcome. and race played a big part in that race right? was, southerners yes absolutely and and so when you get to 1876 you know the again the grant administration is trying to protect the 15th amendment and the right to vote but it's getting more and more precarious uh, as as reconstruction is kind of slipping away but but the 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 the, the ku klux klan and klan like organizations are intimidating voters 
with threats of violence, but there is some actual bloodshed and violence leading up to election day um, in in the southern states. But but there is no additional violence that occurs. It's just threatened over counting votes in the aftermath of eighteen seventy six. But um, anyway, but there are other episodes in history where um, there is violence over. The, the counting process but you it, you uh, mentioned uh, assassination of a governor in the last segment I I, I would be committing uh, podcasting malpractice if I didn't ask you about that <laughs> well sometimes I ask my students you know which is the again the ugliest or worst episode in American history and and you know some students identify this one as as their example because um this was Kentucky. And it was the, the election was 1899, and um, it was a fight over the governorship, and uh, and you get a very close result, and 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 both sides want to prevail, and it got to the point where um, uh, shots were fired, and this is it's just hard to believe, but the but the assassin's bullet was fired was fired from the secretary of state's office. <laughs> Uh, the 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 you know it, it was on the 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 capital square of the capital and and the shot you know so it was a political assassination they never they never proved who fired the gun uh but let me guess the secretary of state was of the opposing party correct <laughs> uh you know so that's as ugly as it gets um that is ugly um in your review uh of election history, your scholarship, including your book, uh, Ballot Battles. Would you have foreseen the January 6th attack on the Capitol? I'm not asking a political question, uh, Professor Foley. I, sort of in the trajectory of our election history, if you and I had coffee in 2014, 2016, when your book was published, would this have come up, this possibility in that sort of coffee that we're having? Well, yes and no. I want to be clear. The the part that I was very worried about, and 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 you know, there's some references to it in the conclusion of the book and in some other scholarship related to the book. In other words, from the work that I did, I knew that our Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is undergoing potential revision in Congress right now, the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, which sets the framework for the joint session of Congress that meets on January 6th, I knew that those legal provisions were vulnerable to abuse and would benefit from uh, revision and, 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 and shoring up. So I, I was worried that, you know, in a in a close, uh, you know, what I had in mind was something like Bush versus Gore of 2000. Yeah. Would have been hanging chads, but, you know, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, hanging chads. Yeah. But, but something absentee ballots, provisional ballots, you know, there would have been some basis for a genuine contest because whatever you think about this Hayes Tilden uh, 1876 election that I mentioned, or, Bush versus Gore and it's hanging chats. Those were real fights over real disputes. The, some of it was extremely ugly, but 
But both sides had plausible claims within the context of the legal system that they lived in. And there needed to be institutions and rules to adjudicate those disputes and settle the disputes so we know who gets to be president given the nature of the dispute. And what I was worried about after 2000 was because um, Al Gore, you know, I mean, there was a fight that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, Bush versus Gore 5-4 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, a lot of fighting over those hanging chads. But um, Gore accepted the Supreme Court's decision and did not attempt to take the dispute all the way to Congress and the 12th Amendment. Uh, and that was the difference between Bush versus Gore and Hayes Tilden. Hayes Tilden, the dispute was in Congress. And remember, it went all the way right up to March 2nd, you know, and we almost had a second civil war. So the thing that I was worried about was what if you have an election? And, I, you know, I was first worried about this in 2008 when it was just McCain versus Obama. And then again, you know, I was worried about this in 2016 when it was Clinton versus Trump. Well, what if there's a dispute? Mm -hmm. That gets litigated in the courts like Bush versus Gore, but the losing candidate doesn't take no for an answer and says, I'm going to Congress with my fight. Uh, you know, studying what I had studied, I said, I, you know, I worry that the rules for what Congress is supposed to do are not good enough. And we could have it could get very, you know, scary between January well, that that kind of that that happened in 2021, right? Yes, but 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 what I didn't anticipate. So I I was worried, for example, that you could you know Congress could meet on January 6th, be deadlocked because what happened back in 1876 was that the Senate wanted Hayes to win and the House of Representatives wanted Tilden to win. And when we have a bicameral legislature and one house is controlled by one party and the other house is controlled by the other party and party politics starts to take over. You can have a breakdown in the system and have no answer. And then you have an inauguration day with no answer. And that gets you back to two inaugurations. We can't have that. And so I was trying to imagine what would that look like in the 21st century um, with inadequate rules. And that's not a good situation. And I was you know, warning about, about that. But what I didn't expect mm -hmm. was the actual um breach of the Capitol. I mean, I I could imagine protests saying, you know, I'm for the Democrat or I'm for the Republican. I didn't expect that, con that the you know that the police lines at the Capitol would would not hold, and you would have the invasion of the Capitol, the riot, the insurrection, whatever we call it, and that they would you know and and the you'd have to clear the chambers, and 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 Vice President Pence would be running for his life essentially. That I did not expect to. Happen. And you say I did not expect that. You're saying that not based on your political views, whatever they are, I haven't asked you, and that's not the point here. You're, you didn't expect that based on your study of history and our laws and what's happened over the last 230 some years, right? Yeah, and the reason for this, I didn't expect that is I, I had been more optimistic when I wrote the book and I was trying to reflect on the totality of American history up to that point, I, I thought that the trends lines were positive. In other words, you know, the, oh, they were positive. Well, up until 2020, because in, <laughs> in the following sense, um, again, the, the episodes of violence that we've been talking about, the assassination of the governor, other episodes that we've mentioned and could the Colfax massacre, they all were in the 19th century. And again, this is sweeping with a broad, broad bunch, but 
the 20th century, we tended to do a better job when we fought because we we reduced the fight to litigation. And we said, we're going to settle this in a court. And one side's going to win, one side's going to lose. But we want this to be a rule of law event. We don't want this to be raw political power at the threat of a gun. And you know, Bush versus Gore was very controversial, but at least it was a judicial resolution. And so I was looking at, you know, the, this and I was saying that for the most part, I was hoping that the big takeaway was that if we had future fights, we would do better by judicializing these, by putting them in courts. And what worried me was that if Congress got con- in control, it would be a political fight and you're actually better off in court. Um, but I didn't expect that again, that we would have yeah. a break, the, the kind, I mean, I think that to my mind, what happened on January 6, 2021 is a signal that we are now more like the 19th century and that we're regressing. <laughs> we're... Um, I, I laugh out of nervous energy here, uh, professor Foley, when you say we're more like 19th century, I'm not. Uh, poking fun at it we'll be back after a short break to talk about another um, issue uh, the electoral college and how it's supposed to work we hope you are enjoying this podcast and if you are then why not treat us to a cup of coffee that's right for the price of a cup of coffee you too can become a monthly supporter of the history behind news podcast we rely on your support to continue this program to continue peeling the history behind our news supporting us is easy just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode and while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Foley, your book, Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, was published in 2020. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was published before the presidential election of 2020. Correct. Okay. One of the points discussed there is that in 1992, 2000, and 2016, the Electoral College of Victory depended on states where the winner received only a minority, a minority of the votes. Um, this is fascinating. Ex- explain this history, please. Yeah, this... Um... This was new to me. And I mean, the, the book with the genesis of the book was President Trump's victory in 2016 under the Electoral College system, which was a valid victory for the system. You know, there was all the dispute about Russia um, disinformation. And but but he got the votes that he got in the relevant states. And that meant that he was entitled, meaning the popular vote. He won the popular vote in Pennsylvania and Michigan and and Wisconsin and other states enough to win the Electoral College majority. And so he was the duly elected president. And again, in a nonpartisan way, I sort of wanted to ask myself, how could this happen? Because I knew enough about the history of the Electoral College to know that the the framers, the founders wanted majority winners. They didn't want minority winners. And yet Trump was this odd combination 
of winning a majority of electoral votes, but the way he did it was with, you know, he didn't win a majority of the national popular vote, but even more relevant, as we'll we'll discuss, in the states that I mentioned, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and, and and Michigan and and Florida and North Carolina and Arizona as well. He was under fifty percent, so more ballots were cast against him, not you know, and then were cast for him in a way. And yet, okay, how did they take those states then? Yeah, well, because in our system, there's the difference between what we call the plurality result versus the majority. And listeners may or may not be familiar with the term plurality means more than anyone else. And majority means above 50%. And the two are the same if they're only two candidates, right? Because if well, this if is why European elections are such a hodgepodge, or let's say Israel or Japan, because plurality plays a bigger role in a multi-party system. Did I, is, is that, is that a correct statement? Yes. I mean, I think you're putting your finger on I mean, the electoral design. Sometimes some countries have what we call proportional representation, precisely because they recognize that they're that, you know, you, you can't just reduce all politics to two, you know, us versus them. You need a multiplicity of parties. So you could have a legislature where 20 percent of the seats are held by a party that wins 20 percent of the votes. Um, now, they may have to form a majority coalition in order to ha- have a prime minister or whatever. Mm-hmm. So under parliamentary systems with proportional representations, you know, that what you're talking about can definitely happen. In our system, as I learned for the research of the book, we've struggled to think about, are we a two-party democracy? I mean, the founders, <laughs> when they wrote the original constitution, we're hoping to create a system that would mean that we wouldn't have any parties. That was wishful like, thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it very quickly didn't work. But they knew that there would be what they call factions. They knew there were interest groups, farmers, bankers, merchants. They knew, right? But they thought that separation of powers and their architecture that they created might mean these interest groups would be shifting coalitions and would never you know, would never congeal into two parties, donkey versus elephant, us versus them. Yeah, yeah. But what quickly they were they just misunderstood what would happen. And 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 again by the 1790s, we get ferocious two-party competition between the Federalist Party of Adams and Hamilton versus the Jeffersonian party of Jefferson and Madison. And Madison, who when he writes the Constitution, says we're not going to have any parties. We don't want parties. By by 1792, he's writing an essay called In Defense of Parties because he's saying my party is the good party <laughs> and their party is the bad party. So when he so, says we don't want parties, he's talking about other parties. Yeah. So but the reason why this is relevant to the Electoral College point and, and Trump's victory and where do we how do we understand our system is um our electoral college is not the original electoral college. It's the 12th Amendment that we get after Jefferson wins the election of 1800. And because what happens is there is this intense party competition between Adams and Jefferson in the election of 1800. And it's a disaster. It almost also causes a civil war of a different type. Um, And Aaron Burr, you know, plays a kind of treacherous role. And it's a fascinating story 
in and of itself, but what it does for our purposes. This is for the 1800 election? That's the 1800 election. In which Adams loses. Adams loses, but 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 technically Jefferson and Burr tie. Yeah, yeah. Because, but they're running, right? They're running as on a ticket together, right? In other words, the, the idea is that Jefferson is supposed to be president, Aaron Burr is supposed to be vice president. Oh, that's right. They're on the same ticket yet competing against it. Oh, that was a doozy of a system, right? It was the right, and the system completely exploded because the system was the original system was built. The way to the easiest way to understand it is the original electoral college was built with George Washington in mind. The thought was that the president was going to be above politics, above the factions, and he was and it was going to be a consensus choice, and it worked. For two, you know, Washington had two terms where he was, you know, basically the unanimous choice. Everybody but wanted that. That, that that takes a character like George Washington's, you know, uh, <laughs> larger than life character for everyone right. to toe the line, but not after. And but once you have Adams versus Jefferson, the system that was built for Washington does not work when it's Adams versus Jefferson. So they realized that after this ugly election. So they said, we got to rebuild the system. So what and, did the 12th Amendment do? So what the Twelfth Amendment it was, and now it was built with Jefferson in mind. It was it was adopted in eighteen. Congress writes it in eighteen o three, in anticipation of Jefferson running for reelection in eighteen o four, and he does, and he wins big landslide, because um, he's quite popular. Louisiana Purchase, people like it. Yeah. And yeah. so the concept of the Twelfth Amendment is if 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 we're no longer in the Garden of Eden with no parties and we have intense party <laughs> conflict, at least the majority party should win, <laughs> not the minority party. And it's all in the debates on the 12th Amendment in, in it. It's like the, the 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 presidency should be in the hands of the majority. That sounds so obvious. Why do you need, it almost sounds like you don't need a constitutional amendment for that. Right. But and so but but here's the thing. They were trying to think Remember, we're the United States of America with federalism and states. And so what does it mean to be the majority party in 1803-1804, given the union that's emerging in this young new federated republic? And so what they say, what they say, a majority means a majority of electoral votes that they think are going to be accumulated because nobody is going to be the get the majority. Nobody is going to get Virginia's electoral votes unless they're majority choice in Virginia. And again, they know Jefferson is going to be the majority choice in Virginia, so he should get all of Virginia's electoral votes. Adams is going to be the majority choice in Massachusetts. He'll get Massachusetts votes. Who's going to get Pennsylvania? Who's going to get New York? They think the states will award their electoral votes to the majority choice of the state. And therefore, whoever gets the the electoral college majority will have what I call in the book a compound majority. This comes from the debates on the 12th Amendment itself. They want this composite majority, if you will, where the national majority is an amalgamation of the state majorities. And as you say, it seems straightforward. Why do you need an amendment? Whatever. The problem is because they they didn't they only fixed half the system. It turns out afterwards, mostly in the era of Andrew Jackson and subsequently, we've abandoned the requirement that you need a majority at the state level. Um, and instead, you can win all of a state's electoral votes 
with just that plurality, less than a majority. How can that be? They thought, Professor they, Fall, if I may interrupt you one moment, you say the requirement of majority at the state level, is that an explicitly formulated written requirement or is that an implicit requirement in the system of the 12th well, Amendment? Right. Yeah, so it's not written in the constitution. It was written in state law at the time that they wrote the 12th Amendment. So they were trying to, they were piggybacking on what they thought the states would do. They didn't I anticipate see. the change that the states would make. And they also thought, well, all right, we now live in a world of two parties, right? They knew they didn't live in the Garden of Eden of no parties, but they, but the, the partisan conflict was so intense between the Federalist Party and the Jeffersonian Party, they didn't imagine third parties and the role that a third party potentially could play. And the and the phenomenon that we've got now, you mentioned 1992, that was the year of Ross Perot, a significant yeah. third party candidate. Ralph Nader plays this, you know, he only gets around 5% of the vote, I think, if my memory of the math is correct, but he's pivotal in determining who wins Florida in 2000. You wouldn't have to worry about those hanging chads if if Florida had just been a two-person contest between Gore and Bush and Ralph Nader was not a factor, everybody who analyzes it says Gore beats Bush because you know basically Nader takes Bush takes votes away from Gore because he's a more environmentalist than even Mr. Environment Gore, right? So so it's the introduction of a third candidate or even more than a third candidate that can cause a breakdown of the system in uh, the 2020 election um there was no third candidate um was there a third candidate in the 2016 election yes, back, yes i mean people did not register this because on the debate stage we only see hillary clinton and donald trump but in yeah. fact there was a third and fourth candidates, Jill Stein of the Green Party oh, boy. Oh, and yeah. Gary yeah. Johnson of the Libertarian Party. Were they even a blip on the on the votes? Well, yes, they are. I mean, Gary Johnson gets in some states, again, about 5%. I mean, again, it's not huge, but it's enough to make a difference in a close race. And in fact, that that's my assessment you know, it's hard to prove because we, you know, it, it, we have the system that we have. But um, the the way to think about this again in a nonpartisan way is just ask what would have been the outcome in this. I mentioned the states of Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. They're the three states that were supposed to be the blue wall that was going to help Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and it didn't work out that way. But ask, your, ask yourself what the result is if the only two candidates are Clinton and Trump. It, it might have been a different outcome. The Jill, Jill Stein actually gets more votes in those three states than the gap between Clinton and Trump. And Jill Stein, Green Party, is to the left of. And she was consequential. She was consequential. Now, would every Jill Stein voter have voted for Clinton if Jill Stein wasn't an option? Probably we not. Know. We can't yeah. prove it. You know, yeah. whatever. But 
But the fact of the matter is it wasn't just a two-candidate choice. Jill Stein was on the ballot. She got more votes than the gap between the two. That's not enough of, to think about this because actually Gary Johnson gets a lot more votes than Jill Stein does. It's harder to know what the Gary Johnson voters would do if they couldn't vote for Gary Johnson. That's more of a split. You know, he's the libertarian. You know, so my own view is that the, the Gary Johnson voter in the states of Arizona, um, North Carolina and Florida, where Gary jo Johnson makes a difference, they probably would gravitate more to Trump as a second choice. I think it's more debatable if the Gary Johnson voters couldn't vote for Gary Johnson, would they have voted for Trump or Clinton or stayed home? You know, we just don't know. But the point is, we don't have a system that is really the system that we think we have. There's a we're, there's a disconnect between what we think our system is doing when what we want our system to do and how our system actually operates. Professor Foley, uh, to sum up this segment, um, I want to make sure that this statement that I'm about to make makes sense, reflects what you're saying. It's possible for a candidate to become the U.S. president with, with the minority of the popular vote, national popular vote, and also the minority of the popular vote within some states? Not only that, within the states that cause the electoral college victory and that's why the, the wow that's, is that that's isn't that crazy it is crazy <laughs> it's not only crazy it's inconsistent with what the vision was supposed to be right the, again the vision was that you were going to get that national majority from state majorities you now can get the technical electoral college majority not with a national popular vote majority no you can be the national popular minority but you can also get the technical electoral college victory by being the minority candidate in the states that give you the electoral college. And it's that's like it's a minority of minority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it. So, you know, I, I think our system is not well designed to meet the needs of 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 the country or and it's operationally no one designed the system that we have it. We kind of fell into this by accident through a combination of the Constitution and then the new state laws that kind of don't work very well with the Constitution. And let's talk about that in the next segment. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Foley as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Foley, in a previous segment, you said that our founders wanted a system in which the majority elects uh, the president, uh, and also within states, you know, uh, representatives and senators. Um, well, 
senators is actually a different story because they were they were they were voted in by uh, legislature. But you, you understand my point. Um, so, if that's the case, <laughs> why the electoral college? Why just not have popular vote like many other countries? I mean. That was their intent. And we talked about, you know, we, our system is not working. Why not have popular vote? It just seems easy peasy. <laughs> well, I, philosophically, I agree completely. You, you know, my preference would be a national popular vote. Everybody in the United States has equal opportunity to participate, regardless of what state you live in. And we just add up the votes. But I do think it should be a majority requirement to win the presidency because if you had a three-way race again if we want to think about 1992 between bill clinton and george bush and ross perot um you know should you be able to win the presidency you know with 40 percent of the total vote or 38 percent of the total vote or 34 percent i mean uh Again, looking ahead, people are. It is possible that Liz Cheney might run as a third-party candidate. I don't know how well she would do, but suppose we had a three-way race between Biden and Trump and and Cheney, um, and they divided a third, a third, a third, uh, or close to it. Um, you know, anytime you have more than two candidates, it is an interesting and complicated mathematical question. You know. Who should be declared the winner and on what basis? And I is that the reason for electoral college? No, I don't think that's the reason. No, 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 no. The electoral college is more about states and federalism and the the fact that the technology back then was different than technology now and and, and so forth. I, I'm just saying that I'm a fan of a national popular vote, but I would want to say it should be a majority requirement. So France, for example, has a national popular vote. But they have a two-stage system, very much like what California does for its governor's races or its U.S. Senate. In other words, um, stage one, lots of candidates on the ballot, and and the top two winners go to round the second round, and and so that guarantees that second round, limited to two candidates, guarantees that the winner is going to get a majority of the second round. We could have something called ranked choice voting, which some listeners may have heard about it. That is a sort of a new electoral reform that some states are adopting, like Maine and say Alaska. that again, please. Rank choice voting. Did I say that right? right? Rank choice voting, and what that means is you don't need to come back another time to vote a second time. Sometimes it's called instant runoff voting. What it does is it gives let's let's say there are three candidates on the ballot for simplicity, and it's it's. Trump kind of like and best Trump. of three, what kind of like best of three? Yeah. So suppose the suppose the election is is Trump, Biden, and Cheney. So that your ballot would have three names on it, and instead of just picking your favorite, you would be asked to rank them in order of preference. So you could rank. Trump first, Cheney second, Biden third. You could rank Biden first, Cheney second, Trump third. You could rank Cheney first and then decide Biden second, Trump, you know, whatever you could. This is a system that is currently being contemplated. Yeah. Well, it exists in some state. Alaska is using it for the first time this year in its U.S. Senate race and its governor's race and its uh, 
House of Representatives races. Some listeners may have heard about Sarah Palin running again and Lisa Murkowski. <laughs> yeah. um, New York City did this for, you know, Eric Adams became mayor, became, became the Democratic nominee because it was used as part of the New York City race. A bunch of cities use this all around the country. It, Australia uses it uh, and has for, I think, almost a century, if not. Does it work well in Australia? Are they happy with it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's different versions of rank. The, so rank choice voting is a class of electoral systems, all of which use the rank ballot that I talked about, where you get to rank order your preferences. Um, there are different counting formulas that can take those preferences and figure out how are we going to identify a winner. And the instant runoff system is the most prevalent version of ranked choice voting in terms of the the counting methodology. I could go into details, but there's there's another version called round robin voting. Round robin, okay. Yeah, which if you know about round robin sports, to go back to where we began with how elections are competitions, what a round robin system does is is look at each pair of candidates one-on-one, head-to-head, like a round-robin tournament. So it would say Biden versus Cheney, Trump versus Cheney, you know, Biden. In other words, it would conduct a round-robin among the three candidates. Um, so there's different elect. I mean, this is tricky. I mean, it's, I wish sometime in, you know, whether it's in in sixth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, I, I wish Americans were taught about the mathematics of voting because it it's you know it's not more complicated than algebra, but it does require some thinking about how do you pick a single winner if you have more than t- two choices. It's not obvious. And under under our current politics, such a course would be controversial in and of itself, Professor Foley. In the minute we have uh, left uh, of our conversation, I wanted to read something that uh, a statement you've made in one of your writings and, and ask a question about it. You state that supporters of John Jay in 1792 and opponents of Lyndon Johnson in the 1948 Texas Senate race would find it easy to commiserate with Al Gore after the 2000 election. If you could just for 20 seconds, just explain that and then tell me, would they commiserate with President Trump, former President Trump or not after the 2020 election? So um, what that means is it goes back to our notion of of you know losing candidates having to accept defeat and um in the context of john jay running for governor of new york in 1792 and lyndon johnson's opponent coke stevenson in the uh, 1948 u.s senate election um both of those candidates had reasons to feel like they really were cheated out of an honest victory. Um, you know, messy disputes and the institutions to handle the disputes were not well suited uh, to provide the remedy. So, so there is unfortunately good reason to believe that the uh, declared winner um, was not the actual winner. Uh, of, of Oh, okay. Um, and depending upon your view of, you know, 2000 and Bush versus Gore, you know, 
you I think it is a we we talked about hanging chads. There was another part of Florida 2000 called the Butterfly Ballot, which in some ways was even more consequential. But you could make the argument that um, you know the Gore more Floridians who cast ballots in 2000 you know, intended for Gore to win, and he just never made it to the White House. So so I think the point of that sentence was there have been these episodes that were highly contentious and even though there was resolution the losing side could feel like well it wasn't really resolved properly but to take the second part of your question emphatically no trump is, does not fall within that category because even though in 2020 trump claimed that the election was stolen from him there was no genuine dispute in 2020, where there was a genuine dispute in the other examples. I mean, interesting. Uh, you know, those those were fights worth having. Those other examples, there wasn't a fight worth having in 2020. Got it, Professor Foley. Thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? Thank you so much. Thank you. This is wonderful. Same here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News a history podcast for our news.